Welcome back to a very special holiday edition, part two of the Emily Show podcast. Last week, I talked all about, like forever, it was such a long episode, all about the breaking news in the Girardi case, all kinds of stuff. We have an arrest of the CFO. We've got the state bar trying to say maybe they should have done something 40 years ago, or at least that was my takeaway. And then we have Judge Durkin for Illinois throwing the freaking hammer down with none, just having none of it in that ruling, laying out unquestionably criminal activity. Today, we are talking to Jay Edelson from Edelson PC, law firm that was co-counsel with Girardi Keys during that Lion Air case that filed the motions that kicked off and led to Judge Durkin hosting those or holding those days of contempt hearings and has now filed cases in California or case in California against Erica Girardi Keys other lawyers at Girardi Keys. There is a fascinating story in this interview that shocked me about what happened when Edelson reached out to the State Bar of California about what they were uncovering with Tom Girardi. You do not want to miss this episode. Let me know if you enjoy an interview episode. They are rare, but I am happy to do more of them if it's what the law nerds want. So make sure you let me know. Without delay, we are going to get into this week's interview. I cannot wait to share this with you. Thank you, Jay Edelson, again, for your time, for your insight, and for all the work you've done in uncovering the Girardi frauds. It really has been staggering to watch from that filing in 2020 to where we are now. I had no idea how much fraud would be uncovered, and I don't think we're nearly done yet, especially after this conversation. Let's get into it. Hey there. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm your host, Emily D. Baker, badass lawyer and everyone's favorite legal commentator, breaking down the legal shit in the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I'm a big fan of the cursey words. So let's break it down. Sometimes good habits are hard. And my husband, Dr. B, is a dentist and asks me all the time if I'm flossing or if I'm using my water flosser and reminds me that I only need to floss the teeth I would like to keep. And I'm regularly like, yeah, babe, yeah, sure. <laughs> Don't lie to your dentist. Use today's sponsor, Quip, instead. I will tell you, switching from traditional floss that I had to wrap around my fingers, which I hate, and then try to get them into my mouth, which I also hate, to a water flosser made a tremendous difference because it is so easy. Here is my pro tip. Do not use freezing cold water from the sink. Warm that water up a little bit, and it will make your water flossing experience so much better. Quip is making it easier to stop lying to your dentist, even if that dentist is your spouse. Build better habits and try feel-good flossing with their new rechargeable cordless water flosser. And for flossing on the go, you know how much I love the refillable floss stick packs. I rave about them every time we have a Quip sponsorship because they really are that good. So trust me, now's the time to take the plunge into feel-good flossing. It's time to get a little something for you 
and make sure you are taking care of your smile. And because you're a listener of the Emily Show podcast, we have a special deal for you. Go to getquip.com slash Emily Show and get your first refill on the floss tip, brush heads, and more for free. Plus, shop Quip's lowest prices of the year this holiday season. And you know what? If you have somebody impossible to buy for, maybe just say like, hey, I'm interested in helping you take care of you. Here you go. The water flossers are cute, man. Don't sleep on those. Spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Emily Show. Quip, the good habits company. Now let's stop talking about our teeth and get back in to the teeth of today's episode. You like that? I know you do. I know you do. You're like, Emily, wonderful segue. I know. Law nerds, I am thrilled to be joined today by Jay Edelson from Edelson PC. You've seen his name, not only in articles that we've covered on the Twitters and on a lot of the filings. It is my personal opinion, and I will stand by this, that it was their filing in the Lion Air case that brought the media attention to the Girardi Keys scandal to Erica divorcing Tom Girardi in an interesting timeline, and to all of this falling apart when the judge in Illinois, Judge Durkin, froze assets and asked, WTF is up with this $2 million in missing funds. But we knew of that because of the filing from Edelson PC in that case back in 2020. So Jay, welcome. If you want to introduce yourselves to the law nerds, go ahead and say hi. Hi, so so nice to be here. The, the one, one correction on the timeline, so it was the divorce came before our public filing. Yes, but I think you guys tied together the timeline of this is what's going on in court. And then she filed for divorce and then you filed. But I hadn't seen that tied together. It had just been Erica files for divorce. And everybody's like, oh, that's weird. You tied it together and said, actually, it's not weird. This is what's happening. That, that's when we, because uh, I know you've got an informal show. Uh, this one we pooped our pants when when we saw that she was filing for divorce. I went, oh my you're goodness! You're welcome to curse. You're welcome to curse That's... all the cursing on this. Sh- you're welcome to be like we literally shit our pants. It's great. I think we're we're all here for it. <laughs> Pooping is is a big curse word for me. Uh, I'm not as hip as you are. The uh, the but no when when that came out, that's when I said the money the money actually might be gone. Uh, it was unimaginable at the time that he's someone who made hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, it, it made no sense to us why he'd be stealing a couple million dollars from widows and orphans. So when she filed for the divorce, that's when I went, oh my goodness, that yes. maybe the money is gone and this is a much bigger thing. And then we sprung into action. I can't imagine what that sinking realization must have been like, because you haven't been paid as co-counsel. You're learning that your clients who are, you know, as you said, the widows and orphans of this horrific air disaster haven't been paid. The Girardi Keese firm is the firm that's liaising with Boeing, liaising with the clients. You guys are local counsel. And to start realizing, oh God, not only did our clients not get paid, but the money might be gone. Everything happened after you filed seemingly in quick succession because it seemed like the judge immediately was like, you need to tell me what's going on. And then there was that hearing where Girardi's lawyer said the money is gone. What was that like from your perspective? Because it seemed like that was the moment when it's like, oh, no. Yeah, that was actually stunning. Um, the, you know, I, I, I know some people have had criticism that we should have spoken on more quickly, and I'll take that criticism. The, 
in our minds, it made no sense why he would be stealing money from the clients. The, the fact that he wasn't paying us, that this might sound strange to you guys, but um, that's fairly common in plaintiff's practice where, you know, a co-counsel owes you money and they kind of delay or don't want to pay you and you get paid late. Sometimes you have to file suit. And, you know, that, that wasn't the big concern. The fact they didn't want to pay us, if, if you look at like the emails and texts, we were saying, don't worry about that. You can pay us whenever you're, you want. We just cared about the client money. Um, but when we filed, you know, so many people around us were saying, don't do this. Like, you, it's going to blow up your firm. This is going to be, you know, your last days on earth as a lawyer. And, um, and we were just waiting. We were waiting for them to say, you guys just have it totally wrong. And, you know, I, I knew, you probably understand this better as a prosecutor. It's like, you know, you've got the evidence. Yeah. But you still, when you're expecting there's got to be something you're missing. And so when, when we heard we weren't missing anything, um, it was, I was stunned. And then when we found out that that was the tip of the iceberg, um, that he'd been doing this, you know, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, that I, I still can't actually believe that. It feels like we're in the middle of a movie. Not only were you you know, pulling on a thread that you didn't know where it was going to go. But it really, I think, was the, the you know, the push on the House of Cards because Judge Durkin was the first judge that took action based on your filing, the first judge that held a hearing. The first time we all heard the money is gone. And though clients had known this and had been wandering through the court system, it hadn't really been put together and brought to the public. And the thing you touched on was the concern and those around you saying, look, you're going to destroy your career if you call out Tom Girardi. You're going to destroy your firm. And as the head of a firm, you have people's jobs and families in your hands. And in California, I think a lot of lawyers are like, I'm not saying anything. Even the lawyers involved in this are like, oh, well, we read the judge's um, opinion on last week's episode the the lawyer saying, well, we've I've left the firm, so there's nothing more I can tell you. That doesn't absolve you <laughs> just because you've left now. There were so many inside Girardi keys that could have said something and didn't. And then when you did, I can imagine in hindsight, it's easy to be like, oh, well, this is a staggering fraud. But at the time, it was a shocking revelation that the money was gone. Yeah. The I mean, what was nice was the kind of the, the last thing right before we filed. I spoke with Keith Griffin and I said, we are about to do this. We're about to publicly accuse you and Tom and um, David Lear, another attorney of fraud. So if we're missing something, this is your opportunity. And he said, what I want you to do is talk to this other guy, an attorney named Finnerty, and he's going to help figure it out. And we found found out later that Finnerty was actually a former lawyer at the firm. Um, who defended Tom against similar types of accusations. And then I said, okay, this is, this is all insane. Um, and, um, but I think one of the key things, you're, you're right, other people did speak up, not a lot. But when they spoke up, they spoke up to, uh, in, in California, they yeah. spoke up to the bar, which we know, you know, hundreds of times, and they spoke up to courts in California. There's some amazing arguments that are on YouTube now where lawyers are saying he stole money and the courts don't care at all. They're, they're like, ah, you know, statute of limitations, you know, blah, blah, blah. You can figure this out. Um, I think the key thing was that we filed in Chicago. 
Um, Chicago is, you know, it's known for kind of a very, I don't know, brass knuckle. Chicago's not, Chicago's not um, a stranger to fraud, but also these are judges that have no affinity for Tom Girardi. They don't care that he knows the L.A. County Sheriff. They don't care what judges he's put on the bench of California. They don't care that he's donating to the governor. These these judges don't have connection to Girardi Keese and his reputation, I think, the way that those in California did. So this this is, you know, maybe, maybe I'm turning the Kool-Aid. I, I don't think that the Chicago judges care about connections in Chicago either. You know, I'm, I'm, fairly, I'm fairly well known in Chicago, and um, the judge shouldn't have any problem saying, you know, let's figure out if, if as he said, you're in the soup. Um, and um, and we knew we were going to get that. We knew he was going to say, why didn't you speak up uh, earlier? Uh, that's what I love about Chicago judges. You know, they, they don't give a damn when it comes to kind of w- who you are. It's, it's about the facts. Um, so he really saw that in the in the contempt hearing. We really saw the judge saying, I don't care where the evidence leads. It's going to lead somewhere. And where it leads is where it leads, and I'm going to follow it. I want to know who knew what and when, what you could have done and when. And now that we've seen the CFO get arrested, what was staggering to me is looking through Judge Durkin's, um, because I attended some of the days of the contempt hearing, they were illuminating. But looking at Judge Durkin's order alongside of this new arrest of the CFO, accusing the CFO of moving money in September 2020 of $10 million dollars, and that's at the same time y'all are trying to figure out where the money is for your clients. And the course, like if I had known earlier what money might have been there, and I'm looking at these two things going, well, if you had if you had known earlier that it wasn't just a health issue, it wasn't just, oh, we're trying to shift to remote work because of COVID and all this other bullshit, um, there was still at least $10 million there that the CFO allegedly transferred out illegally. So if you all had known earlier, the money might have been there, but your firm, it seemed, was getting strung along by not just Tom Girardi himself, but by others at that firm, Lyra and Griffin. Yeah, I, I think if, if, you know, at some point the full story is going to come out. And I think that, that the way it worked was we were putting so much pressure on them that they started paying the clients something. So um, I can't reveal exactly how much they, they got, uh, but let's assume it was about half. Um, of um, of what they were entitled to. And our understanding is because we were putting so much pressure on them that they wanted to to take care of these clients. But that was to you shut up and go away because you were being very loud about getting your clients paid, it seems like. Yes. And I think if they if they had more money, they would have just paid off the clients um, because because we were the squeaky wheel. Right. Uh, but but their funding ran out. That was one of the other big issues. Tom was over leverage. And he was getting tons of money from what are called litigation funders, um, private lenders, and they stopped giving uh, them money. Um, and you know that that's how Ponzi schemes end. You know, and we've learned quite a lot about the litigation lenders in your lawsuit in the Central District of California and in other accusations against them that they were chasing down the money to keep the scheme going. I think to hopefully at some point recoup it. Like there will be this one big award that's going to come in and it's going to fix all this. And there never was. But Girardi Keys had billion dollar settlements. And we know they weren't, they were taking their costs plus and fees. Um, it's not like they weren't taking everything they could get out of these settlements. It's staggering to me 
that this amount of money is gone. I still don't know how this amount of money has gone to the so, hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes, that that was, I think, what they're holding out hope. They they had all these Porter Ranch cases. Yes. That, um, that they, you know, were expecting it's gonna settle soon. And in their minds, that was going to give them a huge windfall in terms of fees. And I think that that they were hoping if they could delay, 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 maybe that money will come and save them. Um, that was definitely an argument that some of some of their counsel made to us early on um, in telling us that we should we should, you know, stand just down. Wait. Just wait, just wait, it'll get fixed. The thing is that client settlement funds should have never gone out to anywhere else. This isn't co-counsel fees. This isn't their fees. These are settlement funds that never should have been touched. They should have come in and gone directly to the client. So saying, oh, these other settlement funds are coming in and they'll cover it doesn't make any sense because that's not legal. It's not how yeah. it should work. And I mean, as this, this is one of the many reasons I, I love you and your show. You you broke that down, I think, better than anybody else. The, the first rule is when client money comes in, that is sacrosanct. You cannot commingle that with anything else. And um, and he just didn't care about that. And I think there are a lot of finance attorneys that don't view it like that. And uh, Michael Avenetti, that was what he was doing too. He was taking client money, lying to clients about um, when the money was coming in, putting them off. Oh, it's a payment plan. And then using that to fund his lifestyle, hoping then the next settlement will come and pay them back. Uh, Avenatti did it to a, a much smaller scale um, than well, um, Avenatti got stopped early on. I don't know if it would have been a much, if it would have stayed a much smaller scale because it seemed really like the same pattern of behavior. And it's it's not acceptable within the profession. That money isn't yours. And it is a massive problem because you're looking at people who don't understand our legal system. The reason I keep covering this case so much is to just hope that the public awareness changes and rises and that the oversight in California changes. We saw the state bar kind of say, mea culpa, this has been gone for 40 years, but it was staggering their report. Because in law school, it's like, hey, um, the state bar opens an investigation, have fun getting disbarred, buddy. And then you're looking at hundreds of opened investigations by the California State Bar. I was appalled. I was absolutely appalled. And and you're still giving the State Bar way too much credit. So they did not, they did not come a couple. They have not. I might be licensed in California, Jay. I'm licensed in California. I know. <laughs> I, they, and they, they threatened to take uh, retaliatory action against us. Immediately. Yes. Immediately when they reported, when we reported this to them, that was their take. Um, so they, I need to know more about that. Tell me everything about that. It's, if I'm being too generous, I'm going to stop being so generous. Tell me what oh I need. God, no. If, if you want to know who the who the bad guys are, um, the California bar is worse than anybody because they are the police force. Um, they're the ones who should have stopped it, and they didn't. And what we're what we're going to be able to prove later on in the subsequent suit um, is that they had an active role in protecting Girardi, and they're still protecting attorneys involved in the Girardi crime spree. So, so can the state bar be sued for not protecting the public? He's saying, yes, I think so. Your opinion is, yes, the state bar can be sued for not protecting the public. I get asked this question a lot. In theory, can the state bar be sued? It's your opinion, yes, the state bar can be sued. The Well, yes, definitely. They uh, the, the question is where they can be sued, but not whether they can be sued. Um, so they've got some 11th Amendment defenses, but um, but 
I mean, I, I don't want to start giving, giving away what their defenses are, but, but here's what I can tell you. When we, when we found out about this, we reported this to the California Bar, and we thought they were going to say, oh, my goodness, we're with you. We thought they the were going to The response should absolutely have been, holy shit, this is staggering. What were those state bar agents doing that were partying with Tom Girardi back in the 90s and early 2000s? We're appalled that this happened. Let us see what we can find. We're going to fix it. And I'm glad that those people are no longer at the state bar. That should 100% have been the response. It wasn't. Instead, they said that first they said they weren't going to do any broad investigation into the other attorneys who clearly were involved in the Ponzi scheme. The idea that, that Tom did this alone is silly. Um, the other attorneys of the firm um, certainly knew about it. Judge Durkin's order kind of makes it clear his view of, of, about yes. what the role was. Um, and so we thought they were going to start investigating. And the response first, this is going to be stunning to you. Their first response was, Jay, there's no snitch rule in California. That's how they called it. That's the snitch rule. Because it is a snitch rule. Yep. But anyone who calls it a snitch rule means no. you're on the wrong side. Yep. A prosecutor would never call something a snitch rule because that, that demeans whistleblowers. Yes. Um, and, and we said, but we're not, we're not saying whether, whether California licensed attorneys should have disclosed this. We're saying whether they were involved in, they participated in it, covered it up, lied to clients, all of that. And they said They're participating in theft from client accounts that goes a bit beyond, hey, this attorney might have done this or that and didn't communicate. This is stunning. And Judge Durkin kind of laid that out, what the model rules were. And it was funny, as I was going through that last week, the amount of people who were like, wait, what? So let's break down the California, quote unquote, no snitch rule. Attorneys aren't obligated by the bar to report other attorney malfeasance, which is not the rule in a lot of jurisdictions. That, that's true, except for when we start pressing, then they they switched tacks and said, well, wait, you guys have some licensed uh, California attorneys. Maybe they should have spoken up. So we're going to start investigating for that. And we're like, right. So these you want to investigate us now. Cool. Right. And it, but we're not going to do a broad investigation into into David Griffin and all these other people. Um, and you know, the number of arguments they made, and we said, you've got to have a special prosecutor. Um, and they said, no, um, we said, um, you've got to tell us how many other complaints there were, uh, about David and Keith. So they've now, they've now said, oh, by the way, since the 1980s, uh, we were told that Tom was stealing from clients. Um, now we've done our job. And we said, but how about all the other attorneys? What about the other attorneys? And they're saying, no, we're not going to give that. They're saying, we're thinking about it. It's been two years. Yeah. Um, we we uncovered uh, information suggesting that one of the attorneys is added again, and we told the bar that. And their view was, okay, well, if you give us stuff, you know, maybe we'll investigate it. But we're we're trying to put most of our resources just into the Lion Air part of it, you know, as opposed to the the forty year Ponzi scheme. The Lion Air part of it, thanks to your settlement with your insurance carrier, the clients have been made whole. So while the Lion Air part is ongoing, there is so there are so many clients of Girardi Keys that have not yet been made whole that it's absolutely staggering. And the bar has said they're paying people out of the bar funds, but the fact that they're showing no interest in continuing to look at it, I see you shaking your head. I want to hear what you think about that. The fact that they are showing no interest in pursuing this further 
is really, I mean, the LA Times took them up to the California Supreme Court to try to get them to disclose stuff for their investigation. It sounds like you guys are fighting with them as well. Yeah, and and their view is, is you know, go pound sand. Um, uh, so, and but the really scary thing, you're right, the fact that other clients haven't been paid is a huge problem, but also the fact that you have attorneys who may have been involved in criminal behavior who are still practicing and dealing with client money, um, you're going to see at some point they're going, the bar's going to have to say, this is how many complaints there were against Lyra and Keith Griffin and all these other co-counsel, because uh, there were a lot of co-counsel that I'm sure understood that money was being stolen. We'll see if, if they participated in it or not. I, I do have to clarify one thing. Um, we, we didn't settle with, with, um, with the clients. Um, what we did was Judge Durkin, it was such a weird moment. I was on the stand and um, Judge Durkin said, have you ever thought about taking an assignment, paying, paying what they lost, and then you pursue the claim for yourself to recover the money? And that's what we did. Yeah. So settlement would be that we asked for some sort of release of liability. And we didn't ask for that because you know, we didn't do anything wrong. Right. Um, and um, what we did was we did that because you know, my rule is I, I want to sleep at night. Right. And uh, it, was, it, it was it was really hard to do that uh, with, you know, I fought so hard for, for these clients, getting them a really good settlement. And, um, you know, financially, our firm's able to do that, which, which is lucky as, you know, help them out. And then the fact that we could then kind of use our resources to go after David and Keith and some others more directly was was pretty exciting to us. Um, so just for for clarity to to our audience, your firm made the clients whole and you are then pursuing those lost monies after they've been made whole on their behalf, which will just reimburse you because you've essentially paid them and then are pursuing the money on the other end. And whether you get it or don't, the clients are made whole. And if you don't get it, then it's, you know, your firm has lost X amount of money that hasn't been paid and and you guys will deal with it. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit more complicated that we think that we've got uh, some extra type of, of claims, some additional damages uh, that we're entitled to, and the clients will get upside in that, um, and we'll get some upside too. So um, our hope is if we're successful, and it's going to be hard uh, because, you know, there's so many creditors out there, but if we're successful, the clients, you know, not only will they have gotten their money back, but they'll have gotten some, something more as well, which I think they deserve. And they've been they've been through a tremendous amount. And then it has hopefully they are not watching, you know, what's being said on on shows like The Real Housewives and social media, where the concern for the victims has been voiced by some of the cast, but not all of the cast. And and I I can only imagine how frustrating it is to then watch what you're going through play out on television, not just for the clients, but also for you and other attorneys watching this all unfold where you've got Erica on TV saying, well, we don't even know if money was taken from them. No, we do. We know. We know that money was taken. This, this is the, the biggest loss to me personally is, yeah, I can't watch reality TV anymore. The, um, you know, I, I was- tragic. It is. That was, that was like 80% of my private life. Um, I was a fan of the Real Housewives and all of that. This is why we get along. <laughs> the, I still watch Below Deck. Um, the, uh, but. Uh, but no, I, I watched those franchises and, you know, and kind of viewed it as, you know, I knew that it was, it wasn't really real, but it was fun. And, and then it stopped being fun when, 
when Erica was eating the caviar pie, talking about the widows and orphans, do you remember that with um, yes. Captain Elton and mm-hmm. yeah, the amount of money they were spending just in that dinner? And then, um, and then even the ones who claim that they they care about the victims. Who, who's the most recent housewife who's getting booted off? Who, who with the hundred thousand dollar donation? Um, hundred thousand uh, dollar donation. I don't know. Are we talking about somebody from Beverly Hills? Or are we talking Beverly about Hills? Yeah, she's she she was involved in the like um, supposed bullying of of Garcelle. Oh, Diana Jenkins. Yes, Diana Jenkins. The one who said she had paid your clients. Yes, she had, all all that was this crap. All right, now I'm gonna swear because I'm pissed. That yes. is total total crap. So, wait, wait, did you just classify crap as swearing? Because like I let my kids say crap. We have a very we have a very different take. I appreciate the Midwestern ness of it all. Jay. Oh no 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 no. The um so I'm East Coast. So, uh, the um <laughs> the I, I I do have a potty mouth, and with with my kids, I I believe a lot in autonomy. So my I have an 18 year old son who's not me happy that I'm referencing him, but he uh, he is happy to playfully swear at me all the time, <laughs> uh, and I think that's fine. So, I think that's I think that's great, but. I appreciate it. I also appreciate that though I get to be a attorney that just makes content, you also do have clients and I appreciate that there is a, a level of comportment. And so I will not tease you about it. Speaking, while we took a break for a minute, can we talk about where you are streaming from? Because the wall behind you is absolutely fantastic. And I wanted to ask about it because I think Jay could be a streamer. I do. This is a fantastic backdrop. And for those of you listening in the audio, you'll have to just come over to YouTube and take a look because it's great. Your mural's incredible. Uh, thank you. Yeah. First of all, uh, you you did the streaming thing great, and I have zero zero interest never uh, uh, trying to compete with you or even do my own small thing. Um, I don't know how you have the energy and charisma to to handle that, um, but that that's not me. I think I think I'm good at being a lawyer. And I'm just you're like I'd like that. doing what I'm doing, which is totally fair. But yeah, no, the mirror, this is my office. You know, we, we have a different type of firm. I have a, uh, I'm very into uh, volleyball. We have a volleyball court right outside my office and we play every day. Um, so in the building, it's amazing. And um, it's a very, uh, it, it's a very casual place. We work on huge cases, but have a lot of fun. Um, we put out our own rap videos. Uh, we're actually working on one. <laughs> just going to, I just heard, Ari Shark, partner of the firm, he's a genius uh, in terms of writing lyrics and rapping. And um, we're going to put one out. We're about, you know, Tom Girardi and Erica and the California Bar. I love that. Amazing. So, yeah, it's, as you know, being a lawyer can be be tedious. um, And, you know, when you're working on big cases, sometimes you need an outlet to to relax and, and let go of some energy. And we try to do that at the firm. And I think what a lot of people don't know that you're kind of tapping into is a lot of lawyers are also, though they are analytical, are a lot very creative. And you have to be in law, both logical and linear and creative, because you have to make connections that no one else is seeing yet. You have to look at problems from different angles to solve them. And you really do have to get creative in your writing. Um, And you guys have some sassy writing. We very much appreciate it with the, the, crispness of your complaints. They're very easy to read. Not everyone can write that an audience could pick it up and read it, even if they aren't lawyers, and say, oh, I understand exactly the point you're getting across. And that takes more skill 
than people notice. It takes a lot of skill and effort to make something seem simple when you're talking about legal concepts. And that does take quite a lot of creativity. So I'm not surprised that your firm is also making music videos. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's very nice. <laughs> it's fun. We There used to be karaoke during Christmas parties at some of the offices I worked at at the DA's office. I was always blown away. I'm like, wait, y'all can like sing though. Like I just make jokes, but y'all can sing. <laughs> it's insane. The amount of talent that we have um, at, at the firm, which I didn't realize, um, we, we just hired someone who uh, has trained as an opera singer and can't wait till we get her into a video. We don't know how we're going to do it, but... We have we have uh, this kind of wealth of talent, so I, I have no talent uh, with that. Uh, I that's true. The, but it's okay. oh, I no, the I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't act. None of those things. Um, the any any time I do anything creative, it's, it's always kind of behind the camera, which I like. Um, but no, it's been great. Like the the people, the firm who kind of who who are really creative people, and you know we tend to attract more and more of that, and it's just been fun. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a big part of our firm. And I think your firm is kind of the way we're going to see firms going with leaning into the uniqueness of their attorneys and their skills instead of trying to make them kind of cogs in a wheel or, or just make them be carbon, you know, copies of each other. And I think that's where you really get the brilliance in law is having really diverse and creative and talented attorneys. But most diverse and creative and talented attorneys don't want to work in a firm that tries to kind of pigeonhole them into being just one way. And I think that that's a really incredible thing. Your firm, because we didn't really intro it earlier, we just started talking about it. Your firm deals with all types of cases. This is unusual, but you've dealt with some really large tech cases and others. Do you want to just share a little bit about the types of cases you guys regularly cover? Yeah, so we're we're a plaintiff's firm. We um, have about fifty attorneys, about hundred people at the firm, um, and do all types of, of high stakes plaintiffs work. Uh, we kind of made our bones. Do people say made our bones anymore? Or is that I like, think it's okay. Dating? It's fine. It doesn't matter that it's dating. Okay. Yeah. The, uh, you got your cred. <laughs> this, this is this is why I, I retreated from teaching uh, in law school because every time I would make some reference to pop culture. It was older and older and older, and the students just, you know, they they just no longer got. I um, lean into the cringiness, and occasionally I'll make a reference, and my audience will be like, "Wait, what?" And I'm like, "Oh, that's right, y'all weren't born yet. It's okay. This is epic, and you need to, you know, you need to, you need to lean in." We, I was streaming with a younger attorney who I really enjoy, and she hadn't seen my cousin Vinny, and I was like. I'm, we need to stop this stream immediately. Go watch my cousin Vinny. Like just, you, you have to. And there's a generation of attorneys out there that has not watched my cousin Vinny. I didn't realize that was an old reference until then. I was like, darn it, I'm old. <laughs> so I, I actually have a deal with, with our chief of staff where, um, where I, I've given her a list of movies that I feel like she has to watch. Um, <laughs> things like crazy things like Back to the Future where she's like, what is that? And then in turn, she gives me things that I have to watch you know, which, which are actually more videos. <laughs> no, no, no. She's more sophisticated than that, but, but like actual, you know, uh, only murderers in the building, you know, something like that, um, where, where, which people today actually watch and, and that that's worked out well. Uh, that's but fantastic. yeah, but so in terms of our firm, we, we, we kind of made our mark doing a lot of technology cases, large ones too, and Facebook and kind of, a large settlement, $650 million settlement against them recently over privacy violations. Yeah. We also have been involved um, 
uh, California wildfire cases. Uh, right now, we're in the middle of trying a huge case against NCA over their failure to warn of dangers of football. Um, and we've got uh, thousands of, of cases where the lead of uh, the concussion uh, MDL multi-district litigation mm -hmm. in, in uh, federal court in Chicago. Um, that's a we, big deal. Audience, that's a big deal. Being the lead of the MDL is a, it's a, it's a big deal. Jay's not going to say it's a big deal. I'm just going to say it's a big deal. Okay, keep going. That, that, We're talking to an audience of mostly non-lawyers, so they know. It's, it, it is what it is. The, um, but it's, um, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not what I expected to do. Uh, you know, I started my own firm when I was three years out of law school. And my goal was to try to earn a living where I could pay my rent and not have a boss that was being mean to me. Those were those were my That's two fair. goals. I love and, those. I love those goals. Yeah. No, and I, I still every day I'm so thankful that like I've hit those two goals. Everything else is kind of gravy though. And that's how I feel about what I'm doing now. It at at some point the very large machine that is a very large prosecutor's office was just not working for me, even though I loved my colleagues and I loved the work, um, fitting within that was very, very difficult because you're really at other people's control all the time. They're like, I know you like working with a 15 minute commute, but LA is a very big county and we need you in this office over there for this arbitrary reason. So enjoy your hour and a half commute each way. Um, those types of arbitrary decisions over my life were were not a good fit amongst other things. And so I can understand having control over your own career and life and not being subjected to arbitrary rules that serve no purpose is a huge factor. And in law, yeah. there's so many arbitrary rules that you're like, I don't want to do that. So I, I can imagine that you would have dominated in front of juries. I can't imagine you being in kind of a corporate setting of, of a DA's office, you know, which is buttoned down. I'd like that, I, I've tried to figure out how that worked. And it must have been, you know, a, a fairly hit often. No, but. it was a bit stifling. I stifled myself. So you just weren't me. you just weren't you for right. years, mm -hmm. at least during work time. Yeah, that's that's awful. Um, what's what's nice is the new generation of attorneys, their view is forget it. We're gonna be ourselves. And they're they're really forcing firms to shift, uh, which is which is really nice. Which is good. And I think um I think I could have pushed it more at the DA's office. I had tremendously supportive supervisors, like my on-the-ground supervisors. The people at the main office don't always know you, and you kind of want to make sure that they don't in such a large office. I had tremendously supportive supervisors, but I also felt like I needed to play that role. Like I also had a vision of like, this is what it means to be professional versus this. And I was very successful in trials. So had I pushed it a little bit, I think it would have been accommodated because I, I there was no denying that I, I resonated well with juries. But also jury pools are changing since I left in 2017, but jury pools are changing too. People are much more open. They don't necessarily expect that their prosecutor is going to fit this one mold that they saw on TV this one time. But that wasn't the case in my early days of prosecuting. There was still, you know, a lawyer means this. I still get comments across my across my um, YouTube all the time. Like, you say you're a lawyer, but you curse a lot. I'm like, if you think lawyers don't curse a lot, I have news for you. <laughs> in my experience, the best trial lawyers often are the people who, if you pass them the street, you would think they are not trial lawyers at yeah. all. Exactly. And that's the point. The ones who try to, to 
impose that upon you generally are, are compensating. Um, but we've gotten we've gotten far field. We could chat about careers forever because I'm fascinated. But I love the mural. I love learning a little bit more about your office because this is. I imagine this case has really become a, a center of focus or at least conversation with your office because stuff is happening every single day. What happened at your office? Because I know what happened for me as I was a friend of mine just ran for judge in Los Angeles. So we were away um, for election results. As I'm getting the news on my phone that the former CFO of Girardi Keys has been arrested and charged with wire fraud, my jaw hit the floor. Like I did not see that coming at all. I thought there would be arrests at some point just based on all this behavior. I don't know. I just wasn't expecting just one person just right now was did what were the conversations like at your firm? We're all going, this happened. <laughs> Look at wow. We're we are so as goofy and silly as we are, we are so dead serious about this this case. And it really is a mission for us. So when we got that news, we were focused. It yes. was, okay, let's figure out what the implications are. If we can be helpful, how can we be helpful? Uh, and we're trying to learn as much as we could. Um, this was not a part of the scheme that we were aware of, you know, the the, the uh, embezzlement within the embezzlement. Um, the um, so th- so we were kind of just looking and trying to piece together what we knew uh, to create a fuller narrative. Yeah, like so, where does this fall within? Because just for a reminder for the audience, you have sued for civil RICO allegations, essentially the Ponzi scheme allegations not just lawyers, but legal landers and Erica Girardi in the Central District of California a number of months ago. So you've been saying this is a bigger fraud for, well, since the beginning of your filing, really. It's like, this is this is bigger than this. And you had originally filed that um, in Chicago and then moved it to California. So we know that your firm has been like, this is bigger for a while. So then getting to this like, oh, and then there was $10 million allegedly transferred out in September, 2020. That must've been quite an interesting bit of information. Yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, the, you know, one one of the things that that we're trying to figure out is how wide, uh, a, how broad a scope it was in terms of who participated. Um, so Chris Camone, CFO, uh, clearly was working with other people. Um, according, and we, to be clear, I, I don't have personal knowledge of this. I'm just reading. reading. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't don't want anyone to be confused. Um, The prosecutor's office, they don't call me and say, hey, here's your briefing. I can Um, guarantee you that the prosecutor's office doesn't call anyone and say, here's your briefing. No, but (laughs) I I don't want there to be any confusion. But the, um, but you know, the allegations are that, that he was, um, uh, that he was laundering the money through third parties like vendors and uh, et cetera. And we're very, very interested to figure out who those people were um, and whether they were involved in the broader scheme. Um, you know, the broader scheme is what we care most about, you know, which was the 40-year, hundred-plus million dollar theft of client money. That's what we are laser focused on. Um, not that we don't think it's important, um, the Chris Camone part, but that's less important in terms of kind of what what our mission is what we're trying to to get yeah, to it's, the a, it's a piece of a larger puzzle a yes. much a much a much much larger puzzle and even though we're talking about large sums of money 10 million dollars to the potentially hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars is 
is a, well, it's just a piece of it, isn't it? I'm going to be very interested to see how much information he gives the feds. Um, because, you know, first one arrested has the opportunity to tell them everything. And that will be fascinating to me to see um, when and if other arrests come down the road. And we've seen this. I covered, I've covered a lot of uh, wire fraud cases recently, including the Jen Shaw case out of Salt Lake City, wherein she was the last arrested and the prosecutors have alleged she's kind of the tip of the spear. And so the prosecutors at that point went up the chain in their prosecutions, um, you know, making deals as they go to get all of the, the fuller picture. What I was surprised by in reporting is that we learned that the FBI has been talking to numerous other parties in all of this behind the scenes, including, you know, a woman that Chris Camone was giving money to um, and to other parties. I just in my brain assume that those other parties are other people connected with the firm, but it seemed that he had the heads up and still flew back from the Bahamas. So there you go. It's well, just I mean, fascinating. It, I, I don't think that these are the most brilliant criminals ever. Um, I think that they were effective because um, because the, there were a lot of corrupt forces which allowed them to get away with this for decades. And I think then you get a certain amount of empowerment. You think that, you know, you're you're invincible. Um, but yes, I, I doesn't it doesn't make sense to me why he would come back uh, to America. He was in the Bahamas, um, came back supposedly to, to meet his sister, I think. Um, and I don't understand uh, why he would do that. The thing this is this you're probably going to think I'm I'm silly. The thing that really upsets me about the Chris Camone thing is that he hired Scadden Arps to represent him and uh, a former U.S. attorney. Uh, so those those are um, appointed by the president, as you know. That is a very tough job to get. Mm -hmm. um, the, the woman he hired is uh, clearly an incredibly impressive lawyer. I'm guessing that she charges well over $1,000 an hour. And that actually makes me sick to my stomach. We've been dealing with Scadden because we've been suing him separately and he hired Scadden for the civil cases too. And the idea that he's using client money um, uh, to hire the most expensive lawyers out there uh, feels really crappy to me. Yeah, um, it's, 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 I was, I commented on it a couple of times because I was stunned. I'm like, wait, his attorney's from Scadden. How is he affording Scadden? And he would, this is my perception, again, no inside knowledge. But when you're looking at white collar criminal defense, you're taking money up front. You're not waiting to get paid later. There is a substantial retainer generally involved in that. And it's it's interesting given that he's he seemed to have had four knowledge of this because he got arrested and then arraigned. I don't know how you could have gotten someone from Scadden on the phone and hired them um, in in the, as much a few days that they had from the time he was arrested to the time he was arraigned on charges and then held in custody to transfer back to California. So we know he knew this was coming because his in the detention hearing, we heard that he had been given the heads up by um, the woman he was trying to get to come down to live in the Bahamas with him. She said that she had been talking to the feds. So we knew this was coming and it was planning for it by talking to attorneys um, as, as one does, but with what money and money that probably came from clients of Gerardia Keys, or at least I wouldn't be surprised if it did because where else is this money coming from? That's how it feels like to, to us. That it's, yeah. you know, it's burn victims. It's, uh, it's people who suffered the worst tragedies. And then you know they, they were doubly victimized. Um, 
And then there's something really just disgusting about that. You know, what was he spending money on? You know, buying, you know, what a Birkin? $150,000 purse. They didn't say what kind of purse. I'm just guessing it's a Birkin, like a super rare run. I, I don't know purses, but I, I asked someone, I said, are there actually $100,000 purses out there? And the response I got was only Birkins. Yes, so, that's, that's what I assumed as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's really, that is, that is really disgusting to me. Like that money is really meaningful um, to, to, to these, to the real victims mm-hmm. and spending on purses, um, you know. For, it was how I felt about seeing the actual check from client trust accounts for Erica Jordy's earrings that are supposed to be going up for auction um, early next month. It's, it was that same sinking feeling of, you've got to be kidding me. Like when you think it's not going to get worse, this case continues to show the levels of people not caring about what's going on with this money, using it as their own personal piggy bank and feeling as if, or seemingly feeling as if they were above the law but when you're Tom Girardi and you get into the late, you know, into 2018, 19, even 2007, people have been complaining about you to the state bar since the mid 80s and shit hasn't happened to you. Why would he think anything other than he's above the law? Because everyone he's interacted with has protected him to allow this to happen. The judges who said, oh, this is past statute of limitations, the clients who he intimidated by phone calls, the other firms that he tried to intimidate. He's gotten away with it. So why wouldn't he keep doing it? But those seeing those checks being written for cost out of client accounts was just, it just, there's something so visceral about it. And, and one of his first reactions to us bringing this to light was for him to call me up and try to bribe me and offer, offer to use his connections with California judges to make me another million dollars. And, you know, remember this, is the guy who had dementia, but was able to string all that together. No, he uh, was he was he was trying to strike a bargain because I think that's what had worked for him before. That right. So that's my take. That this was not his first radio, and you know he had two ears. One one which we've heard from others is you'll never practice in California again. I'm going to destroy you. He did not do that with us. Um, and then the other was I'm going to bribe you. And, I'm going to make you rich. Yes. Which okay. You're like thanks. We we don't want to get rich the way we see you getting rich. That's not that's not what motivates us. And I think for Tom Girardi, he doesn't understand people who aren't just motivated by money because it's worked so much for him. And your firm is not motivated by money. You're motivated by purpose. And that's a very different, a very different thing to deal with. Um, and I don't think it's something he was used to dealing with. No, no. He he whenever he and I had personal interaction, it was oil and water. We we were not, we did not see the world similarly. Yeah, it was a values misalignment, I think you would say. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think we've seen that we've seen that a lot. I mean, I've I've heard some of the voicemails he's left for people, voicemails that you attached. Um, I'm a good guy, just trying to be charming. But I've also heard the vitriolic voicemails where he's threatening people and he seemed to shift between the two. If I can be charming, I'll be charming. And if that doesn't work, it goes right to the the threats and the vitriol. And I can understand why some in California would be concerned by that. It's like, look, I don't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. What's so shocking to me, not just the clients that were hurt, but you know, his son-in-law is roped deeply into this, David Lira. So he's impacting his grandkids, his daughter, his, well, his hey, family. Hold on, you're blaming, you're blaming Tom for that as opposed to David? 
I'm blaming both of them. I'm blaming both of them. Absolutely. But to know that you're committing all of this fraud and to, to not, to, to knowingly bring your son-in-law into that to impact your family. And we've got a big issue here. Oh, this is a fantastic issue. We want to see the puppers. Okay. This is my best friend in the world. Uh, This is my dog, Arlo. I'm sorry. He he Don't just you apologize. We're Ponards up in here. I'm sending you Ponard merch after this interview immediately. Arlo. Arlo. He is. I'm not saying he's the best dog on earth, but that's I'm a dog that's better. And I'm sorry. Now I've got people in the room. We have another firm dog, Millie, who's tied for best dog on earth. Of course, she's blind. Oh, right people. Just, people. I just stuck in some real doggy. Too. Anyway, I just love my dog. I love that. I look. Everyone wants to work where their pets can be. My cats regularly wander through my streaming setup. My cat whapped me in the face with a tail during one stream. I had like cat hair stuck to my lip gloss. It was, it just is the way it is. Animals make work better. And we, um, on my channel, I was just covering the Daryl Brooks case in the Waukesha Parade Massacre. Every single victim statement, they thanked the support dog. Everyone Thank the support dog. I think it's great you have dogs in the office. It's fantastic. Well, I mean, the uh, I'm getting dirty looks uh, about the other dog, uh, so I'm in a lot of trouble. But uh, Arlo does. Arlo and Millie do most of our writing, so you know. They, oh, oh here's, here's fantastic. Oh, we've got all the dog. Sorry, this is a great dog. It's a Millie fantastic dog, and they romp together. Um, but yeah, no, it it changes. You know, we we're in very stressful situations, and. You know, we'll have mediations involving hundreds of millions of dollars and having a dog there changes everything. The other side's chill, we're chill. Um, and it just, it, 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 makes, it makes everything work a little bit better. I really do believe just, I've done a little bit of civil work. I was a civil research attorney. I worked during law school in the AUSA's office. I worked as a DA. When you get a point where lawyers can be human with each other and have a conversation and not butt heads, it's better for the clients. Everyone comes to a resolution that is truly a compromise, which is what most of law is, is compromising to get to to at least somewhere where you can move forward from. And it costs clients less if lawyers resolve things without the vitriol, without the back and forth, you suck emails. And without protracted litigation, I think bringing dogs into it is brilliant. You take everybody back to, let's have a conversation and see how we can work this out. And that's really how law should be. It shouldn't be people trying to beat each other over the head with hammers. Yeah, we don't mind protracted litigation either because we think, you know, sometimes you do have to go to trial. And, and sometimes like, you need it. <laughs> yes, yeah, but, uh, but I agree with your sentiment. Yeah, and and. You know what, truly for, for plaintiff's law, it makes sense. Sometimes you need it. Sometimes the, the harm done, the only thing that's going to work, not only for victims is for them to have their voices heard, for them to stand up to the wrong that was done to them, but for a jury to come back and say, this is the money that is going to make this right, and then bring in the punitive damages. And some of that just can't be reached with settlement. Oh, no question. So I, I get it. But um, we have talked about, well, the California State Bar um, I, I didn't know you guys were going back and forth with them and trying to work with them and have been showing them, look, this is what's going on. And they're like, two years we've been there for two years. Jay, that's so stunning. It is crazy. It's so stunning. So when you saw their report, you were like, um, a little too late and a lot. Uh, I was pissed. That's when I was pissed. It, it was, are you guys kidding me? So as we're going and we're making these allegations and putting ourselves in the line and saying, we think there's been a crime spree. 
And then we're we're up in court in the tenth hearing, and we're trying to explain what was going on to the judge with Keith and David. And all this time, the California bar had unique possession of all of this evidence, which would have helped us, and they sat on it. And it's insane. They could have stopped this if if they had done their job at any point. Um, then then all these victims it wouldn't have happened. Uh, Girardi would have been in that's what the law nerds were asking. It's like, but why not 1985? Why wasn't this stopped in 1986? Like, why are we getting 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years in? The, the volume of clients that were harmed in that period of time is literally mind-boggling to me. And that's just Girardi. And that's just Girardi, right. It's all, I'm sure a lot of people had problems with the firm probably. Um, probably had complaints about other lawyers at the firm. Because so, those are the lawyers that they would have dealt with directly. They wouldn't have dealt with Girardi directly because not everyone's going to deal with him directly when they deal with Girardi case. And and people should know that it, it is very rare to get, you know, a lot of bar complaints. You know, very we, rare. We, we, our firm has had thousands and thousands of cases on behalf of literally hundreds of millions of people. And, you know, the... You don't, you don't get, you know, sometimes you have people who are just upset. You know, we, we had a bar complaint. We filed suit um, against some gun manufacturers um, for, uh, uh, there was a shooting um, near Chicago on July 4th. And we brought suit against them and we got a bar complaint from someone in the public who said, you know, you guys are violating the Second Amendment. You know, you'll get kind of those. Those bar the public, well, when you work on the internet, the public sometimes has opinion, but client complaints. Client complaints, especially about, about, about stealing money. My view is the second a client says that, the world should stop. Yes. And it should be the attorney's burden to demonstrate that's not true. We actually have proposed legislation in Illinois, um, and we're hoping that gets passed, which will give uh, clients uh, the right to immediate accounting. Um, if they have any concern that they haven't been paid in full. And if a, an attorney does screw around um, and take some of their money, then they lose their entire fee uh, to disincentivize them from doing that. And we're, we're hoping, the, the plaintiff ourselves doesn't embrace the idea that we need to reform, um, which is a big issue. Wait, you know, after, after this, the plaintiff's bar is still like, eh, that's just one guy. Really? Oh my God, they're saying that publicly. So I, so at one of the big, plaintiff's uh, conventions, conferences, I gave a speech about the lessons uh, to be learned from Girardi and was saying basic things like, you know, you can't commingle funds. And people were taking notes down. And then afterward, no. Yes. And then afterward, people were like, yeah, we're just going to keep doing it. And the argument I made to them, and, you know, I'm sure some are are watching now, was that, that when the prosecutors come, they aren't looking at at what you're doing in the future, they're looking at what you did for the last five years at least. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't want to wait until everyone's in jail and then say, now we're going to shape up. It's kind of too late. It's so, too late. And for prosec- from a prosecutor perspective, y'all are setting yourself up for easy pickings, especially for elected positions that want to signal that we are prosecutor's office that want to say, we are taking this seriously. We've heard you. The public is being damaged by licensed professionals. The licensing agency seems to be protecting them. 
And this is where prosecutors come in. Prosecutors have no problem going after you. Why? Well, they've already, they've got their job. They're not worried about you taking action against them. They're protected by their office. So it it sets it up for, for uh, prosecutors to very much take a look at because there's no excuse for funds being commingled. Like not, none. That's not hard. That's so basic. And plaintiff's attorneys, we're supposed to be reformers. Like that's what we do. We go in and they're polluters and we, we say, you know, you got to fix it. But then when it's in our own backyard, we we all, you know, protect each other. And so we we still get calls from people saying, please stop. You know, all you're doing is, is shining a spotlight into plaintiff's law. And our view is right. That's a good thing. You're you know, shining a spotlight into a system that has been taken advantage of, not just by Tom Jordy. Have you been looking at the Murdoch case in South Carolina? No. Tell me. Oh, Jay. Okay. Can I give you a quick rundown? Yeah, sure. Alec Murdaugh is a legacy in South Carolina. His family had been solicitors in South Carolina like their elected DA for like 10 generations or some crap back to the early, early, early 1900s. This unraveled very quickly, but it involved client theft. He is now accused of murdering his wife and son. He staged his own murder and was shot but grazed and didn't die. And yes, was charged with, you know, his own murder for hire, the person who he hired. There are allegations of drug use, of drug distribution. And then they are starting to rope in the bankers, the trust accounts. He was, he had created an, an account that looked like it was going to a plaintiff's trust account that would that would invest in and send funds to clients. So he created a bank account with a similar name and was funneling money into his own bank account so his firm wouldn't catch it. When his firm got wind of money stolen, the one that hurts is watching money be stolen from his own housekeeper who died on his property, which is now being relooked into. They actually exhumed her to re-examine the cause of death, but died on his property. He set up the family with an attorney who was like, oh, this attorney will help sue me because I've got insurance and we'll just make it all work out. And then he stole the funds from her estate. Um, His law firm, when they got wind of it, paid that back and is suing him the same way y'all have done. But it's just staggering. He stole from his his, housekeeper or house manager, who also was a nanny to his children of 30 years from her children after she passed. It's staggering but it the money amount is less it's in the tens of millions but also the housekeeper's death is suspicious it's a lot the housekeeper's death is suspicious he's alleged to have killed his wife and son there is a lot of suspicious activity with cover-ups with regard to his son the deceased one who got into a boating under the influence and killed a a young classmate there is a lot of cover-up that went on in that case that is still under investigation. And there's a lot of civil suits, of course, into that. It's staggering. So the the tentacles on that one don't just go towards client funds. They also go to police cover-ups and like systemic corruption. Um, but he he's a plaintiff's attorney. Yeah. Well, I, most plaintiff's attorneys, I, I think, are good. You know, I'm not... I know I agree with you. I, but when it goes bad, it can go bad so badly. And, and the the hypocrisy is what what you know. Tom spent his life, uh, his professional life, talking about you know how great what a great job he did uh, for all of his clients. And you know, it was made famous through the Aaron Brockovich movie. And and it seems 
very possible that you're stealing money from their Aaron Brockovich clients themselves. Um, and accepting awards, naming buildings after himself, after himself. All fame, yes. No, these guys, they're... They, so when I, when I gave that that speech at the um, Plano's conference, they started by by mentioning all of my awards, you know, because we all get them, you know, it's, uh, whatever. What I have a silver play button. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> From YouTube, a silver play button. Oh, wow. These okay. are the types of awards I get now. I do have some police commendations and stuff like that. But as a prosecutor, it is not the same. It is not the same as like getting emails from super lawyers being like, we have space. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. But, <laughs> but they did this big thing, you know, this is why Jay is a big deal. And these are all the awards. And, and I started by saying, I think the one thing we have to agree on is that awards don't mean anything. You know, Tom was speaking the same conference a few years ago. And the awards he got were 10 times better than mine you know, Hall of Fame plaintiff's attorney and, you know, lawyer of the best lawyer of the last 10,000 years, whatever, whatever crazy awards he got. Um, It's all, it's all. He was using those to insulate himself to an extent of saying, because we heard from the bankruptcy trustee, I think it was, about the stacks of the magazines that were, you know, mostly paid paid placements that he was giving out to potential clients saying, look at how great our firm is. Look at the recognition we have. And I don't know how clients are supposed to overcome that because they know he's got a great reputation. But if you go look at the bar, no public discipline, what's a client supposed to think? And then how alone they must feel when they're like, I think something's, my lawyer's doing something wrong. And they call other lawyers and other lawyers are like, I'm not touching that. I'm not touching that. I'm not going after Tom Girardi, no. Yeah, but then to the lawyer, the clients weren't the suckers. I mean, we were sophisticated and we were suckered by it. Yes. You know, we, we saw the same awards. We saw the same huge verdicts and settlements um, and the, the huge displays of wealth. But one of the things I really liked about Judge Durkin's opinion was, um, I won't say he endorsed any of our theories, but, you know, we've, we've argued that um, Erica was used as a front woman, as, you know, someone who really portrayed this huge amount of success and wealth. Yes, it's expensive to be me. It puts yeah. it all right in there. Yeah, and, and that that we believe we're going to be able to show to a jury was a crucial part of of the fraud. That you know this this public facing image of I've got untold amount, uh, amounts of money, um, and you know that that you know along with all these ridiculous awards he got, um, kind of helped further the fraud. The untold amounts of money are why we watch Real Housewives of Beverly Hills to see the ridiculous houses, to see the, you know, the Heather Dubrow's Orange County, but to see that she has a champagne button in her bathroom. I mean, we, that's the escape of reality TV is seeing how- okay, wait, that would be kind of cool. It would be kind of cool. I agree with you. Heather Dubrow's house is gold, but now she's selling it and moving. <laughs> and I, I have questions. I want a champagne button. My champagne button in the bathroom works like this. Brian, <laughs> bring me champagne though. Since we've moved to Tennessee, it maybe needs to be a whiskey button because I do think completely I've been drinking whiskey way more than champagne <laughs> because I love it so much. But it we look to to that wealth. And I remember Erica walking around the house and like, this is my chapel and this is, you know, whatever carving it is in the floor under glass and this is the estate. And who has a house that big in Pasadena where no one has that much land? It's just, it was staggering. And the oh, well, you know, we have the big plane and the small plane. And sometimes we take the big plane and the music videos that cost millions of dollars to make it. 
It's one of the things I liked very much about Erica Girardi early in the seasons. She's a woman in her 40s that's pursuing a non-traditional career who has this older lawyer husband. They seem to genuinely like each other. And she's like wearing necklaces that say, see you next Tuesday in diamonds. And her husband's this massive plaintiff's lawyer. I love that juxtaposition and her independence. And that it, now I'm just like, oh God, oh. Knowing how that's being funded makes it very much harder, harder to watch. And I just, I hope if you're, you know, if and when your case goes to trial, that some, what did they put in their audition tapes to Bravo? What did they tell Bravo about their wealth? I know these things are asked about. How did they get cast on Real Housewives? Was Tom lobbying for them to be on Housewives? And if Tom's lobbying for them to be on Housewives, is it in furtherance of the scheme that you've alleged? Is it to really continue showing it? Because now it's not just LA that knows it, it's worldwide. Um, I went to BravoCon in New York. Next year, you have to come to BravoCon, Jay. This will be, this will be fascinating. You're like, no thanks. Bravo- I, I, don't know, I don't know what BravoCon is. I'm, I'm, I'm listening. Jay. BravoCon. Yeah, because you're busy. You have like a job and stuff. BravoCon. No, it's more because I'm, I'm lame. I, I work, I play volleyball, and I go home <laughs> and get sleep by 9 p.m. It's not something that's, you know, super, super busy, fun life. No, I love that. I want to be in bed by nine o'clock always <laughs> exhausted. Bravo put on a three-day convention that covered all of the Bravo properties. It was the size of a Comic-Con convention. Hundreds of thousands of people at BravoCon at the Javits Center in New York. And they have panels like they do at a Comic-Con of the different um, of the different Bravo Bravo enterprises. They have... Um, Q&As. They have, it was a massive convention. The panel for Real Housewives of Beverly Hills had a legitimate stampede of people trying to get seats in the room to see what Erica had to say. I mean, this is still, her presence on Beverly Hills is still very much driving people looking at her. Now it's in a more negative way, but I think it drove, there's plenty in my YouTube audience that hadn't really heard of Tom Girardi outside of California before they were on Real Housewives. That is what brought him to more of a international um, being known and being known by a younger audience. We're like, oh, he's that other lawyer from Aaron Brockovich, not the main one. So it, it's, I really want to know what they sold to Bravo to get so, on the show. So this is the thing that shows how naive I am. That was one of the most stunning things that kind of came, came, um, came out of this for me, which is, I didn't understand how big a deal Erica was in the world. To me, I thought we are uncovering this huge um, Ponzi scheme by one of the most notable plaintiff's attorneys. And that is the story. And I realized that, no, like the, the megaphone, uh, you know, effect of, of Erica being involved, you know, it was, it's been, it's been kind of a tiger by the tail, you know, on, on one hand, it's been, I'll admit that it's been helpful to have more attention on this case because we think it puts more pressure on the California bar, et cetera. On the other hand, it distorts what the case is about because mostly what people want to know is, you know, what Erica knew. Yeah, what Erica knew and what's, is she going to go to jail and all of that? And she definitely, you know, there, she has a huge role in the story, but that, that's not that's not what I deeply care. What I deeply like, care but about. Griffin and Lyra are attorneys on the ground taking emails 
or letters away from being sent to clients to cover oh. up this fraud, which is yes. when I read that in Durkin's um, in Durkin's opinion, I was like, they're just, I mean, if you can define aiding and abetting, it's knowing that it's going on and <laughs> protecting it from being discovered. It's It was staggering. But yeah, Erica has been the story since the beginning. The media has put her as the face of the story because when I said, you know, I'm looking at this Murdoch case in South Carolina, it has a ton of regional, intense regional interest, but it does not have the national interest, even though you have theft from clients and a whole bunch of murder and people are still not paying attention to it in the way that they're paying attention to this case because Erica's on TV. And I think there's also this uh, almost dual purpose of we're watching the filings come out. We're watching your filings. We're watching the LA Times reporting. And then a few months later, you get to see all the women on the show reacting to it, reacting it's to so the crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. We're seeing it in real time. Yes. And and we're going to use this stuff for our cakes. Of course. You know, I'm seeing stuff out there and Erica says stuff. And I'm going, oh my goodness, I now have that. Yeah. And I, I've, I've never been involved in a case before where things are happening on the ground and then you wait a couple months and you see what the reaction is. Um, it's, it's... And I think it's why it makes people are like, how is Bravo keeping her on? I'm like, look, Bravo is like, we're just making good TV. And I think for Erica, she has to continue to work because her lawyers, and this is my speculation, her lawyers have to be telling her, you need to worry about the IRS and the Franchise Tax Board first, then you need to be worrying about the feds, and then you need to be worrying about this bankruptcy. Because um, we already know the personal stuff's not going to be discharged and it's going to fall to her. Um, and I I understand when she's sitting at the the you know reunion not this last one, but the one before in like a contrite pink dress crying, how could he leave me in this hole? I understand that she's like, how could my spouse peace out into a conservatorship in his 80s and leave her in this hole? Um, doesn't okay. mean she didn't benefit from it, but she's I view that as crocodile tears. I mean, we know she's been talking to him, you know, even recently. She said, um, and, and we've got, we've got, recordings out there of that uh of tom who has interceded on her behalf even though apparently he still has dementia he's able to do that um and interesting and how conservatorships work where it's like oh he's in a conservatorship now without really? much of a neurological evaluation it's it's strange and the fact that the courts haven't gone oh if this person's in a conservatorship and has dementia do we need to look at all the settlements that he's made in the last year or two no none none nobody seems to care there are a lot of issues with that. Um, yep. The, um, but, uh, but yeah, the fact that you know Erica still uh, suggests publicly, and she's got a bigger voice, you know, than than anybody else who's involved in this. Um, she's still suggesting publicly that you know maybe there was no crime. Yes. Um, and that that's really um, that's really horrible. Um, Tom has admitted to it. He's been disbarred because of it. There's no question. I, I want your audience to hear this clearly because you know that if, you don't want to accuse people of crimes um, because you can be sued for defamation. So you don't want to do it unless you're 100% sure and then use wiggle room, you know, likely Tom stole money. You know, he absolutely stole money. I'm sure he absolutely stole money. And absolutely. Judge Durkin laid it out in his last order that there was yeah. things that were unquestionably criminal amongst saying other things by Lyra and Griffin were both contemptible and sanctionable. But because you've made the victims whole, there was no remedy for it. 
Um, can I ask you, when you started watching, did you start watching Erica reacting to this all going down in real time? Was this conversation at the firm, were y'all in a group text being like, can you believe this shit's happening on TV? I just want to know the behind the scenes. I'm fascinated. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. The Like, there was one line where she said, some asshole in Chicago is saying this. And You're like, we did it on TV. <laughs> yes. That, you know, uh, mom, I, I I did it. You said I wasn't going to be successful. I'm successful. <laughs> Erica called me an asshole. Um, the, um, the you know, that, that stuff was, it was weird. It was weird seeing that all play out. Um, the, but mostly we were focused on how we could use that to help build our case. Um, so that's mostly how we were looking at more from a clinical point of view, which also made watching the show a lot less fun. Um, yeah, because it's, you, now you're gathering evidence. Really. Yeah, it's, it's really yeah, worked. It's worked. That point. I feel that way about watching Housewives too. It's, it's become work, but I created my job talking mostly about pop culture so I could choose the cases I covered because these are things I want to read about anyway. And even when I was at the DA's office, I'd be like, did y'all watch Jersey Shore last night? And they're like, girl, no. And I'm like, come on though. Come on. This is the greatest show on television right now. And people are like, what are you talking about? I love it. Here, here's the thing that this is, um, this kind of what, what astonished me about kind of your career, which is that you understood that, that people, that there was this merger of reality, pop culture, and the law. Because you actually get into the law yeah. uh, with that, where if you had come to me, um, this is why no one asked me for opinions. If you come to me and said, I think there's a crossover and people want to understand the substance of the law in this context, I would have said, yeah, maybe like six people. And, um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm wrong. It's been, it's been amazing to see. I, I know I'm not really the person supposed to ask questions, but did you, did you expect this to happen to like take off like this? Jay, it's a conversation and you are more than welcome to ask questions. I did not expect it at all. When I, when I told my husband, I really wanted, well, when I told my husband I was leaving the DA's office, he's like, okay, we're going to figure that out. And I had gone into consulting for online business owners strictly. And then during the pandemic, I started branching out and covering, first it was Kanye West putting all his music industry contracts on Twitter because I never worked in the music industry. I never got to see those types of contracts written, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into these contracts to negotiate his album deals and percentages. So I started covering those. I was sitting there screenshotting everyone he put up thinking immediately, like Universal is going to set a cease and desist and those are all going to come off at Twitter. Um, and people were like, wait, I want to understand more about that. I want to know more. Like we've seen him do this, but I want to understand more. And then there was a very large lawsuit that is a nuanced legal lawsuit involving a massive YouTube influencer, Toddy Westbrook. She was suing a business partner. There had The business partner sued her on a derivative for the business. And I was like, this is fascinating. But also the lawyers that filed that initial lawsuit were media savvy enough to throw in references to other YouTubers. They made it very shady. And the media was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. But this is also like a derivative suit with, with a co-owner of a business. Like there's a lot of legal nuance to this lawsuit. That lawsuit has branched into like five other lawsuits. And it's been kind of a, a incredible watching the lawyers piece it together and all the different back and forth. Um, so people were interested in it because of who the person is. I'm interested in it for both reasons. And it was referencing things we had all watched play out online. So it had all those elements 
that what we see in, in the Girardi case. It has somebody who's a public figure that people are interested in and aware of, but it also has this aspect of watching it in real time and then watching everybody's reaction to it that's involved with it. You're watching one of the people involved with these cases react to it on television. And that's the same as watching YouTubers react to their own lawsuits on Twitter because it, it happens in some of the suits I cover. You're getting the parties on Twitter against advice, I'm sure, of all counsel talking about their cases. It's insane. The, yeah, it's funny that the, so I'm going to go back to my son again because, yeah. because uh, I want to rip him publicly. But, you know, he, he watches um, a lot of, of um, uh, people like you who, who are doing legal commentary uh, in the pop culture context. Um, uh, I think some of the ones he watches uh, aren't, aren't really the ones he ought to, but he does what he wants. And he'll come to me and he's like, hey, dad, so um, they mentioned some other case of yours, not a Girardi case, but some yes. other case. And this is what I now know about that. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm literally right here. You could ask me anything. Instead, you're listening. To, I'm not going to mention the person, yes. but you're listening to this person who doesn't understand my case. any bit of it at <laughs> all. And it's my case. Jonah, come on, stay with me. No, I'm much more interested in someone else talking about you than asking you about your cases directly. Yeah, my kid came home during the Depp Heard case and was like, mom, somebody at school is like, you have 200,000 people on your live stream. I'm like, I do. I do have 200,000 people on my live stream. He's like, why? And I'm like, I don't know, because we're watching this trial together and it's wild. There are things happening in court and we know that from being in trial that unexpected things happen, but there's no, there's no studio audience when you're in trial. You're like, that just happened. And you might have a colleague that witnessed it. And you're like, that incredible thing just happened in court. With Depp v. Heard, we were all watching it together on the internet going, oh my God, the guy from TMZ just roasted the plaintiff's counsel. <laughs> Weird. Yeah, that was crazy trial. And um, it, the public is interested and always has been interested in law. We've seen that since the OJ trial. People are deeply interested in understanding our legal system. We've seen that with the popularity of true crime. And we know that people around the world are interested in pop culture. And that's where, you know, being able to bring that together and bring actually a legal understanding, I think, makes it helpful because our legal system is super complex um, and there's a lot of facets to it. And being able to break that down lets me do the law stuff that I love, talk about the pop culture stuff that I love. And, and it makes me feel like I haven't wasted years of my life watching reality TV. Now it was just training. I was in training. <laughs> yeah, and, but when they were doing it for OJ, it was, it was tough shirts doing it. It was not accessible. And frankly, a lot of the people doing it, they, they weren't lawyers. They may have had that like in their, in their background, on their CV, but they weren't really like trial lawyers. Most of them hadn't done trial work. And no. very few legal commentators have done trial work. I know. It's, it's, they get a lot wrong and they make it uh, less accessible uh, to people. So it, it, this has been, it's been just so much fun to be on, but what it's, I, I just credit you the fact that not only did you do this, but then you broke through um, to, you know, mainstream stuff where kind of everyone was like, yeah, she's, she's the expert. We love I love that I get to have purple hair. And, you know, Discovery Plus is still like, yeah, you're the legal expert we want on our documentary. I'm like, great. Yeah. <laughs> We're all on the yeah. same page. This is, this is the, new, the new legal industry in my, in my mind. And, you know, I love it if people are watching you and saying you can be a lawyer and actually be yourself. 
And I love that too. And I love that you've created that um, at your firm. I love that you are not just creating awareness, but also writing your legal filings in a way that serves both purposes. It's made it tremendously easy to cover because you're so clear. It's easy to see what your theories of the case are. You're not trying to play hide the ball. You're not trying to make it more complex than it is. And that takes a tremendous amount of skill and it's a credit. I mean, I watched watching the contempt hearings. Everyone that testified from your firm was so open. I, I mean, as you should be at a hearing, but was so open and honest with, this is what happened and we are just as stunned as you are. And if that's on us, then that's on us. But we are stunned that this happened. And it was inconceivable when it happened that the true, true case was not that a firm was dicking around with your legal fees, but that the money was stolen and gone. That was really staggering. And I think in hindsight, it's easy to forget that. But, you know, a ton of credit to you and your firm for having the, the fortitude to go after what you knew was right. Well, yeah, thank you. I mean, in hindsight, I'm really glad we did. Um, I am too. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 been uh, it's it's not the journey I expected to be on. But but we're glad that we've been involved in the fight. It's not. It's it's the tip of the iceberg. But Jay, do you want to let people know where to find you and follow you? I follow you along on Twitter if you want to share that and where people can find your firm and follow along with everything that you're doing through not just my content but through you as well. I'm the so this this is not my world. I, I don't I don't he's like, it. don't shout out my Twitter, damn it. <laughs> I don't even know what it is. It's probably like I'll share know, it in the notes. Else. I'll share whatever it whatever it is, but um but uh but yeah, I'm, I I would I would recommend that that people keep watching you to to understand what's going on. You're able to to break it down in a much better way than I can and also are freer to to say things. There's certain things I can't comment on. Um, well, but, you're involved in all of this. We are, and and it's gonna it's gonna last for a couple more years. That's what I tell people, and they're always shocked. They're always shocked. They're like, "So we're done?" I'm like, "No." And when I choose cases to talk about, it, people are surprised when I say, "No, I choose a case knowing that I might be in it three, four, five years making content on this because we're not just gonna drop it." And this is we are we are a long way from done in these cases. Um, and, and I'm going to be here covering because now I'm too deeply invested. I need to know how this ends when it eventually does. So Jay, thank you for your time today. Thank you for all your incredible work and and for really taking the time to sit down and do some long form, long form content with me. I'm sure that they will ask for you to be back and I will happily have you back um, when we have some more to chat about in the future. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jay Edelson as much as I did. Just a quick reminder, if you are looking for some holiday goodies, the Law Nerd Shop for just a few more days has a sale going on for you. We re-released the hoodies with embroidery. I'm wearing one now for the video audience. I love our new hoodies so much, but there are staggered sales and your discount code for the members are in your members' spaces. So don't forget to check out lawnardshop.com for all your holiday lawnard gear. And if you order stuff now, if you are in the U.S., you will get it before the holidays. International shipping times may vary, but you still should get it before the holidays if you order during this sale. The shop goes on sale like once a year. It's on sale through Cyber Monday on November 28th. So don't forget to head over to lawnardshop.com and take a look for yourself. And with that, thank you for being here. 
Thank you for being a Lawnard. I am raising my five-pound, ridiculous, 40-ounce Stanley, like, thirsty quencher, whatever it's called, mug that I love so much that's literally bigger than my head to say, I hope that you are well. I hope that you have a slow and restful week and that you get to spend time the way you want it with a little bit of time off from work. And I'm taking time off from social too. So cheers to that. With that, thank you for being honored. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your turkey be well-cooked. May your pumpkin pie be pumpkin pie spicerific. May your families be well and may the odds be ever in your favor. I will talk to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers. 